0: Thanks, Caitlin. Welcome back, everyone. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving, got to feast on some ham or turkey or mac and cheese, mashed potatoes, whatever, green bean casserole, all the goodies. Um, and you're ready to come back and really finish this semester off the last couple of weeks. We're almost there. Um, some of y'all might still be getting over the food coma, waking up, getting back into the rhythm of life. Because it feels like after Thanksgiving, I felt this today when I woke up, I was like, what do I even do? Like, what is my job? Like, I forgot because I had like three days of sitting around doing nothing. And so getting back into the groove um, is always fun. Uh, But we'll be continuing James. uh, We're almost done with James 1. Uh, We're slowly moving along through it. Um, And tonight I want to start off with kind of, there's going to be an image on the screen uh, Abby can put that up. But, uh, have you ever watched like a movie, read a book, <laughs> uh, maybe even heard a song that talked about, uh, this kind of fork in the road moment? So there's these. Um, A part in the story where the main character, he comes to this point of decision where he needs to make an answer. He can go one way or the other. Um, It's often seen, I try to find something like this. It's like one side is like dark and cloudy and rainy and a thunderstorm and lightning strikes. And then there's another path that's kind of sunny and bright and beautiful. Um, And they're there to make a decision in that moment. Uh, The character um, can choose one path or the other to get to their destination. Um, There's just... One path is gentle and easy. It seems like that, while there's another path that might lead to destruction. Have you ever watched a movie or heard a story like that? I know I have. I can think of a lot. Um, And James tonight, he's going to share kind of a similar reality for us in our walks with Jesus that we're going to experience in our life with him. There's this, you could say, spiritual fork in the road in these moments that, that we'll face as God's people, where there's gonna be um, two, two paths that are put before us as we walk through life. Particularly, James is gonna talk about decisions that are made in the midst of trials, in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of these tests that God often um, throws upon us. One that's gonna lead to deeper formation and likeness to Jesus. And then another path um, that might lead to spiritual decay, spiritual ruin greater pain rather than life. In our passage, James, he has a pastoral concern for these young Jewish Christians in this small church where they've been persecuted and taken advantage of. He has a small concern that every Christian has since. He has a concern that every pastor, every teacher would have for every Christian who's ever existed, a temptation that every person is liable to run into in the midst of difficult and trying circumstances in life. In James, he has just spent the first 11 verses of his letter walking through God's sovereign use of trials, God's sovereign use of suffering and, and these tests that he places in our lives over and over again, alluding to, pointing to the truth that God often uses those things to accomplish his purpose in us. Namely, our formation, our maturation, our sanctification in the likeness of Jesus, his son, God uses those things. That's what James has been talking about, that God's um, trials, these trials in life, they're never random, they're never insignificant, never meaningless to God. But if we, by the power of his wisdom, as we're empowered by his spirit, we endure it with steadfast faith, we at the end will look more like Jesus because of them. And so James has been pointing to that for the first really 11 verses of of our text in James 1 and he's saying that this 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 trial these 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 sufferings they're actually a test sometimes. God uses them often as a test of our veracity, the genuineness of our faith. James would say it's a test. But James also is wise to know that our response is not always to think that way. When we're suffering and in pain and trials and, and tribulation, that's usually the last thing we're thinking about. It's like, God, you're using this moment right now to make me more like Jesus. I'm just going to endure it. No, we we tend to, to head another direction. And James knows that there's another way that we often choose, a path that doesn't lead to life and maturation. It actually leads to the opposite. And so tonight, um, that's where James is at. He's gonna to point to these one or two ways that we can go in the midst of trials, really in the midst of life and in, in decisions with Jesus. Um, and there's, so I'm gonna point out this way, there's two ways. We can view trials as God's forming and testing of our faith and therefore ask for wisdom to patiently endure. That's James 1, 1 through 11. Or we can view trials as God's evil intent for our life or maybe God's punishment or maybe lack God's lack of concern. God's lack of care. God doesn't actually care. And therefore, we'll we'll begin to turn towards sin. We'll begin to turn turn towards pleasure for relief. Or we'll straight up, some people, I've seen it as a college pastor, they'll straight up forsake God and say, you know what, God, I don't want to follow you if this is what life with you looks like. Um, Not understanding that suffering is often the pathway to glory in the walk with Jesus. And so if we were here to sum up the main point for tonight's message that I hope that I've introduced well, it would be this. It'll be on the screen. Our trials can either serve as a path to formation or deformation spiritually. So our trials can either serve as a path of formation, greater maturity is what I mean by that, greater likeness to Jesus, a more obedient, faithful disciple, or deformation spiritually. And it's all based on our response to them is what James is saying. James has already hit on that first part of formation, but now he's gonna move on to the second path of deformation. But I'm gonna pray for us before we dig into this text tonight. But Father, I come to you and um, I think of David in Psalm 18, where he says, this God, his ways are perfect. The word of the Lord, it, it stands true. God, you are a shield to those who take refuge in you. And so God, as we come to your word, Would you speak? We believe that you say in Isaiah 66 that the person that you look to, the person that so on, uh, quote unquote, moves your heart is this, the humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. And so Jesus, as we come to it, would you move in us, Holy Spirit? Would you speak? And would you grant us hearts that hear? and understand, and a mind that, be, and that understands, and a heart that believes, and, and hands that produce, and obey. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, and so again, I wish I would have thought about this before, but I, fi- uh, I feel like verse 12, you could put it e- anywhere in, in James chapter 1, and it, and it fits. Uh, it, it would have made sense last week in our sermon or two weeks ago in our sermon, and, or it would make sense tonight. I happen to put it for tonight. I wish I actually would have put it in a different one. But James, he's going to begin tonight again by reminding us of God's, of the, the, the proper response to God's use of trials, steadfast, enduring faith. We're going to r- work through verse 12 quickly. It says this, blessed is the one who endures trials. This, this, this verse, it serves as, as a sort of hinge point. For the first chapter, it relates to what precedes it in verses one through 11, but it also, it influences how we read and understand verses 13 to 18. So it's this hinge point. It's, it, it serves as a recap, a reminder of what James has been teaching already. And here's that reminder yet again. Those who faithfully endure trials are the people that James says are blessed in God's kingdom. And I know blessed, that's a word that has been hijacked a word that's, that's just thrown around all the time in our current cultural moment, even in the church. And I know it's, it's a difficult word to understand in our cultural moment, but what, but by, what James means by this person, this blessed person, um, is that the person who endures trials, suffering, and tests, this blessedness that they can experience is, is this reality of, of, of happiness in God. I know that's a, a simple definition, but James, he doesn't mean a, fle- a fleeting happiness. This this fleeting happiness that and or pleasure that we often find in life, that's not what he means. Success or pleasure, some of these things that we say make us happy or blessed. I have a blessed life, my family's healthy, all these things. That's not what James means. But the, a better definition that we could say is that this person can expect to live their lives experiencing the joy of Jesus despite their circumstances. That's what James means by blessed. A resolute joy that comes from Jesus alone, intimacy time in his presence at his feet, experiencing his joy, a joy that can withstand the 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 and last through a trial it lasts through pain and suffering and this joy it's a it's a disposition it's rooted in a couple of things it's rooted in 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 a in a future reality rather than a present experience so I'll explain that I want to clear that up when I say that we're when, when James in, in verses two through four, he talks about a blessedness that we can experience now, formation and likeness to Jesus if we endure. He calls us to rejoice in our suffering because we know that God's at work in them. That's what James means, the here and now you can rejoice. But here he's gonna shift our joy to not what we experience now, but what we will experience in the future. Let's keep reading the verse. He says this, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So again, he will receive this crown of life. This person who endures, this rooted faith in God to the end, they receive this crown. The Greeks would call it a victory wreath. It's this, this, this moment of I've made it to the end. I've, I've endured this reward that I receive in my, for my faith in, in Jesus. And, and in a very real way, James means eternal life with God. That's one of the main things he means, uh, life with God in his new kingdom. Um, and James, he's, he's motivating them that, These ever-changing circumstances in our life, that's why we couldn't put our hope in them. Life is up and down, but we're reminded of a heavenly secure hope. So one that's not changing, that's one that's not fleeting, one that's not passing like every new day. And so therefore, they can experience, um, as they experience suffering and trials, they can experience joy, the joy of Jesus Because they know that their future reality, their eternity is settled. It's an eternity of joy, an eternity of life, an eternity of satisfaction in Jesus. But I want to be clear here. This isn't escapism. James isn't saying just forget the pain that's happening around you. It doesn't matter. Just put your head in the clouds. That's not what he's saying. But it's a reorientation. It's It's to recognize that all pain in life is fleeting Suffering is but a reminder of our need for Jesus and his promise that he's gonna make all things new because he really will. And so James is saying, cling to that, cling to that hope in the midst of this world that's caving in around you. And it's that with that future hope in mind that he he begins to tell them, patiently and faithfully and steadfastly endure. Keep going, take your next step. I know it seems hard. These people were experiencing extreme persecution. In the, in, the, in the midst of their faith. And James is saying, keep enduring. God's at work in them. And even if whatever happens, if the worst happens to you, your eternity's settled. Keep enduring. And Hebrews 12 says that um, Jesus is kind of the model of this. Hebrews 12 says that for the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross. It's, a, it's the future joy that Jesus knew the future, um, he's gonna be seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's gonna receive glory and honor through suffering that he endured it. And so now we get to, in a minute, very minute way, we get to mimic him as we suffer now, but we, we our eyes set on our future reality. And so it's in this, we're kind of reoriented back. That's why I say that word reorientation. You're reoriented back to the real story. God's redemption story that God's been writing since Genesis 1, and it begins to help us view the world around us appropriately and, not, and resting in the reality that Jesus, even if we are in trials or even if life is awesome, Jesus is with us in it and he's using it for his purposes in and through us. And that all, it sounds just familiar. It's just a recap. It's what James has been talking about since verse 2. And so that's the good response. So I said there's this two paths. That's the good path. The path of formation, the path of growing likeness to Jesus, endurance and wisdom. But then there's a path that we can choose that doesn't lead to greater life. There's a negative response, a negative path that we can choose in our suffering and trials. And that's, and that's what I mentioned earlier. It's the one that leads to deformation. So let's keep reading in the passage. Um, it says this, no one undergoing trials should say, I am being tempted by God. James 13, 113. And I have a few questions as we jump into this part of the text. Have you, have you ever questioned God's goodness in your suffering? Have you ever begun to believe that maybe God was at fault for the, the evil in your life? Have you ever had that? Have you ever blamed God for the sin that, or, or the evil that you might be experiencing in your life? Because James, in this text, he's going to walk through some of these questions. Um, and he begins by revealing a kind of spiritual truth that he wants to under, undergird what he's about to say. With every trial comes a temptation. So with every trial comes a temptation. There's a human tendency in all of us, regardless of if we have faith in Jesus or not, to question God's character and run to sin when we experience pain, when we experience suffering, when we experience trials, when we experience a various tests from God. Let me give a few examples of this. If your loved one dies tragically or unexpectedly, you may feel the pull to question the love of God. You may even run to anything that you can find to numb that pain, whether it be pleasure, whether it be uh, drugs and alcohol, whether it be satisfaction or sex or approval of other people. These, a myriad of, of, of things that we would say are sinful and you would say it's okay because of what I'm going through. I can do it, it's okay. God's put me through this. He obviously doesn't care. I'm gonna keep running to those things. Maybe you lose. Maybe someone loses their job and they begin to question God's provision for them. And so they'll run to any method, any job opportunity, whether to, to kind of earn money, even if it causes them to begin to cheat people, they'll still do it and say, I had to do it. I had to put food on the table. Maybe your significant other is found cheating. Maybe you find them cheating on you. Maybe you question God's care for you or, and, and then your response is return evil with evil and say, God, if this person, you wouldn't have did this to me, I wouldn't have responded with evil. Or maybe you, you fall for the same sin for the hundredth time and you just can't see victory in it. So maybe you begin to question the spirit of God at work in you. Maybe you really don't want me to free from this. Maybe, you're, maybe this is just something I'm gonna have to deal with for the rest of my life. So I'm actually gonna become numb to it and just give myself over to it. Our heart becomes calloused, hard. And so we just begin to give ourselves over to it. James is saying that this response can be a normal human tendency, a fallen human tendency. But James, he wants to correct these false views, these questions about God um, by, by pointing them to the true nature and characteristic about God. And we'll keep moving in the text. It says this, since God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone, so here's what James is getting at. Do not allow your trial or test to tempt you to forsake your trust in, in God because of who God is. So James is making a theological and a philosophical argument for us. So he's saying how you respond to your trials is a direct response to what you believe about God. And... Um, and 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 he's going to make um, a, a kind of a, an allusion to who who God is. God is not this, so therefore he can't be that. That's this this argument you're going to see in the text. If he's going to say if God is holy, if he's without sin, separate from evil, he cannot be the source of evil in our life. And here's kind of the breakdown that he goes through. This is a a detailed, well, somewhat detailed breakdown of kind of the thought process that he goes through. But here it is: temptation is an impulse to sin. Okay, if that's true, well, also we know God is holy, so that means God is without sin. Therefore, God is unable to sin, nor is he the source for any sin, nor is he tempted to sin. Therefore, he cannot tempt anyone with sin. That's kind of the process that's going on in his head as he communicates this truth. I hope that somewhat makes sense. If it doesn't, I have a quote from someone who's a lot smarter than me at breaking these things down, theologian and scholar, Sophie Laws. She sums it up this way in her commentary on James. She says this, what, w- what must be understood is that temptation is an impulse to sin. And since God is not susceptible to any such desire for evil, he cannot be seen as desiring that it be brought about in any man. So if God isn't the source of our temptation, well, James would say, "Who? Who?" he's asking the question, who is it then? Who is the source? And he's gonna clear up any confusion. And and as we keep reading at verse 14, it says this, but each person is tempted um, uh, when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. So James is clear the source of our temptation to sin is us. How we choose to respond to the, to our life circumstances he's saying is 100% our responsibility. Now he's not saying I don't want I want to be clear. here. He's not saying there's not times where Satan tempts us because it's definitely it's true Genesis 3. There are times where he tries to lure us away. It tells us that he's a roaring lion trying to pounce upon us. But at this moment, James is trying to clear up their false dichotomy, how they view God, by helping them see you're responsible for how you respond. He's saying that a trial, if a trial becomes a temptation to sin, it's because of our human nature, not because of God. And so James, he's gonna give a a short and a succinct, very succinct, step-by-step guide to the process of temptation and how it kind of breeds and grows into sin in our life. And this is the way he breaks it down. He says, desire leads to sin, which leads to death. So that's kind of the breakdown. The desire, if left unchecked, leads to sin. And if sin is left unchecked, it'll lead to death. Death. And, he, and he, so he's gonna walk through this. I'm gonna quickly walk through this and hopefully give a little bit of explanation of what he means. But he's gonna say it all starts with a desire. It all starts with a desire. So that word, it carries a lot of theological weight behind it. There's a lot that's written about it in the Old Testament. But to sum it up for how James is using it, he simply means an illicit longing for what God has prohibited. That's what he means when he talks about desire. Desire an evil desire. It is an illicit longing in us for what God has prohibited. So let's be clear. I wanna say a clear up a couple of things. There's two things James is not teaching. He is not teaching that temptations themselves are sinful. To have a temptation is not sinful. He's not saying that. Jesus himself experienced temptation in the wilderness from Satan himself. And we know Jesus is without sin. And never committed a sin, so therefore to be tempted with sin itself is not sinful and so nor is James teaching that all desire is evil because there will be some people who will twist this text to saying that all of our human desires are evil, every one of them desires or longings in themselves can be actually something good, but we can make it we can twist it we James is saying that there are some desires and longings um that our flesh, that we can in us, that we can begin to turn good things into evil things. Let me give some example. Let me give an example. So let's say um, a woman's beauty is intrinsically good and innocent, isn't it? It is. Beauty is a gift from God that displays His beauty and glory. And beauty, though created and used by God, never forces anyone to sin by itself. A man should be able to notice God's handiwork in creating a woman. Beautiful with innocence. They should be able to do that. They should be able to both recognize the woman's beauty and admire it without it becoming sinful, without it becoming a longing, like a person can admire a piece of art. But the reality is, many men can take this good gift, this work of God and beauty, and then they begin to turn it on evil. They can begin to desire that beauty for themselves and even begin to lust for it sexually. And James is saying, Where's the fault? Some say, let's blame the women. Let's blame the woman who, who, who dresses a certain way or looks a certain way, but he's saying it's not her fault. Nor is it God's fault because he created a woman with beauty. You can't blame him. No, the fault lies with the man for taking something that was meant for good and then twisting it for his own pleasure, for his own evil temptations. It's the same, that's not the only explanation that maybe somebody, you see somebody with a nice house, nice car, something that you want. There's nothing intrinsically evil about that house or that car, but the person can see that object and be tempted to covet it and go at any means to get it, sinful or not. So that desire, what began as good has therefore begun to turn to evil and it ultimately leads to sin, all because of our human nature, all because our flesh twists it. It turns it into an evil desire. And so James is saying that all sin begins with dire, desire, whether that desire be good or bad intrinsically in itself. But it becomes sin at this point when we give in to that evil longing, when we succumb to that evil desire, when the temptation conceives is, is the language he used and gives birth, does it become sin? And James says that at the end of this giving ourselves over to this longing, this evil longing, forsaking obedience to God, it only has one result. He says it's death. There's only one, de- one result, death. And James, he means spiritually and physically. Um, but James is alluding to yet again, the book of Proverbs. You notice two weeks ago, I said, and even in our introduction, over and over the most quoted book in the, in the Old Testament in James is the book of Proverbs. He's highly influenced by it. But he's talking about Proverbs here, particularly Proverbs five through nine where Solomon, who's the author of Proverbs, uses an image for desire as a seductress woman who, who longs to lure the believer away into forsaking their union with God for a fleeting moment of pleasure, a union that will only bring about a spiritual death. That's all Proverbs 5 through 9. This loose woman, as the Proverbs said, he longs to lead God, God's people away from him. She longs to lure them. She is actually contrasted with lady wisdom. There's lady folly. the the seductress, and then there's lady wisdom. The lady wisdom longs to give life to those who embrace her. And so there's a decision for choosing wisdom or folly, life or death in the book of Proverbs. That just sounds familiar to what James is hitting on here. And so James, he's making a point that there's this sort of havoc that sin can bring upon our lives with Jesus. It can wreak havoc in our life. It As I mentioned earlier, it can deform us spiritually. It hinders our maturation. It hinders our formation. It actually leads us away from the joy that's found in life with Jesus. Sin, it hardens our heart towards the things of God. It begins to callous us. It lures us away from hearing the voice of God's spirit. It actually makes his voice very quiet. It will ultimately seek to destroy our communion with God if we leave it unchecked or unfought. And the reality is, as I as I. Prepare for this sermon, there's lyrics to a specific song uh, that kept flooding my mind that I, I think the Spirit was just saying, this is a perfect illustration of the reality of what sin is seeking to do, the, the 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 voice that it has over us as it seeks to wreak havoc in our walks with Jesus. It's an old song. It's older than probably, other than me and Burley in the room. In 1993, uh, there was an up-and-coming rock band called Tool. And they, they released a song entitled Sober. as one of their up and coming songs that made them a really big deal. This song, it's about the inward struggle that one of their friends was having with an addiction. That's the, what the song is about. It's actually about the, an addiction to drugs that this person had, this musician that they knew had, that, that they, they, they had an addiction to drugs to help them in the, in the music creating process. They felt like they had to have it to write a song. And so James Keegan Maynard, he's the lead singer of Tool. He saw this happen firsthand and he began to write about it. But in the song, Maynard is, he's trying to capture the kind of effects that addiction can have over the person. And even what what the addiction is saying to the person as it lures them in, um, and it it seduces them with their promises. In the second verse, it's it's chilling as I think about it, um, but I think it incredibly describes this, this implicit uh, luring that sin has and what it's seeking to do with us as we give ourselves over to it. Listen to these words; they'll be on the screen. It says this: "This is the uh, this is the addiction speaking to the person." It says, "I am just a worthless liar. I am just an imbecile. I will only complicate you. Trust in me and fall as well. I will find a center in you. I will chew it up and leave. I will work to elevate you just enough to bring you down." That is what sin is doing. It is lying to us. It's only desire is to complicate us, to lead us to fall, to find a sinner in us, to begin to chew it up and and then leave, to elevate us for a moment of fleeting pleasure. And then only to bring us further and further down when that pleasure subsides. And the song, it closes with the voice and and Maynard is saying it over and over again, like the voice of the the loose woman in Proverbs 5 through 9. And he closes the song saying, trust me, trust me, trust me. Just trust me. And so our flesh and our, and our enemy, Satan, they, they hate this, re, this reality of formation in us. They, they hate that God is chiseling us, forming us more into the image of Jesus. And they'll do anything to keep sanctification, maturation and formation from happening in us. And they'll, one of their main ways of doing it is they use trials and tribulations in our life to tempt us or lead us away from trust in God. They'll twist it. And so James, he wants us to see that. That this desire in us to forsake endurance, it's not from from God, it's from within. It isn't God tempting you with evil and sin. Rather, he'll say this, God is the generous giver of all gifts. The generous good God who gives good gifts to those who belong to him. Let's keep reading in the text in verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Hear the pastoral voice trying to shepherd them Verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. So as James began his letter pointing his readers to the good and singleness of intent God to trust in in the midst of our trials, James 1, 2 through 4, he leads us back to this generous good God in this text to combat the lies that our flesh believe about him in the midst of our suffering, midst in the temptation, in the midst of tests. So don't be deceived. Don't be led astray to believe the lie that God is at fault for your temptation. To, to, to sin, he's saying that, he's, he's crying out, that's not who God is. Every good and perfect gift comes from our unchanging. That's what he means. He does, does not change like shifting shadows. He is unchanging, heavenly father. He is good, it's who he is. And, and he's gonna point so one specific gift that God grants his children's that James wants to highlight as the chief example of God's character. And we'll see it in verse 18. He says this, by his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. I wanna, that can be a lot over there. You're like, I don't really know what this means, Brian. But the reality is, is many can falsely assume that James, doesn't mention the gospel in his letter. Many people will say that. That Jesus, he's actually only mentioned once in the letter and that, or a couple of times in the letter, and that's at the beginning. And then at the, the rest of the letter, he's kind of forgotten. That, that uh, Many people will say, James is just a letter to do, 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 do. It doesn't have any gospel in it. But in, this, in, in James, he's gonna give an example of one of God's generous gifts, and he's pointing to the gift of salvation the redemption that God offers his people in the gospel of Christ. We see there's two words in this text that help us see this, the word birth and in the word, or the, it's actually funny, the word, word of truth. So this birth that, God, that he's alluding to is Jesus' words in John three, where he says, unless you're born again, Nicodemus, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You must be reborn, born again. But this more important word or maybe phrase that's attached to this new birth is that phrase "a birth by the word of truth. This word is what brings people of God back to new life. This, this new birth, the word is what brings it. And to simplify it for us, I don't wanna get too theological. James means the gospel when he says word of truth. The word of this gospel, when it's believed and it's grasped by faith in us, God says in Ephesians 2 that he makes us alive spiritually, reborn in an instant. And that's the gift that James is alluding to here in this passage. God makes you, he gives you a new birth um, through this word of truth that he presents to you. James is appealing to this new birth as the incredible Example of God's generous gift. Good gift giving. That's who he is. Salvation is, is, is the chief example. One theologian will put it this way: I think I have it on the screen. God's grace has been extended through the gospel to people so as to bring into existence a foretaste, a down payment, Ephesians 1, first fruits of a redemptive plan that will eventually encompass all of creation. So James, he's concluding it this way: where sin only leads to your death spiritually. Life is produced in God alone. Especially, he means spiritual life. The path to spiritual fullness, joy, and life is ultimately only found in God's presence and received by gift from God, contrary to what you may believe about him in your suffering. That's what James is saying. In other words, God, he's not the source of evil in your life. He's the one that brought about your greatest good. Therefore, don't believe the lie of your flesh to forsake him. Rather, run to him. And so as I close, I have a few exhortations. I've gone too long. But a few kind of applications or exhortations, encouragements to us to this. They'll be on the screen. This first, our maturity in Christ, it isn't the absence or less temptation, but the ability to say no to temptation. So some people will falsely believe that the Christian life is meant to lead to be temptation free that I'm not maturing if I still have temptation. That's a lie. But the hope in the Christian life is not to live a temptation-free life, but to grow in your ability to actually win the battle against it. That's the sign of Christian maturity. That's real formation is when we have victory. And the, and the good news about temptation is that Hebrews 2.18 2, encourages us tonight when it says, it won't be on the screen, but I, I'll read it for you. It says this, for since Jesus himself has suffered when he was tempted, Therefore, Jesus is able to help those who are being tempted. So we have a Savior who, who not only gets into the fight with us, but he longs to help us as one who's been tempted himself. And he was actually able to say no, so therefore he can provide a way for us. So again, Christian maturity isn't no temptation, it's the ability to say no to it. Uh, secondly, our desires influence our behavior. Our desire in a very explicit way, influence our behaviors. So James is teaching that what you long for most will begin to influence how you practically live, what you practically do. Or you could say what we delight in will influence what we do. What we love will influence what we do. And so when it comes to the ongoing battle with sin, this luring for evil, the only way to conquer it is to find something or someone else that's more desirable. That uh, someone or something that that we begin to delight in more than sin. So only when Jesus captures us and grows us in our delight for him, can we begin to say no to sin. When we delight in him more, we're we're, we're ruining that communion with him, scares us so much that we say no to sin. Only when your love for Jesus and a longing to know him trumps your love for sin, will you ever begin to see victory over it. That's what James is teaching. Desire directly influences how you live. And then lastly, rather than blaming God in your suffering and trials, run to him in it. James longs for his readers to begin to see God's goodness and God's generous grace for his people in their trials. Not when they're out of them, that instead of believing he's far off, maybe God is actually near to you in this moment. Maybe he's actually at work. Maybe he's chiseling and shaping his people to be more faithful and enduring disciples and he's using suffering or, or trials to do it. Disciples who are unwavering in their hope to him or in him, regardless of their, of their status and circumstances right now, they're secure in heaven. Disciples who are rooted in God's grace and mercy towards them in the gospel, that as they move through kind of the ups and downs of life with Jesus, they do it steadfastly, faithfully, enduring that's what James is challenging us with tonight. So when it comes to that fork in the road moment in your walk with Jesus, where there's two paths that are open to you, either one is choosing endurance by God's wisdom, empowered by God's spirit, fueled by God's presence, or will be an, the other side will be an enticement to forsake God, to begin to take matters into your own hands. And it's in that moment that James wants us to be ready. He's encouraging them, be ready. Ready to say no to sin because your love for Jesus trumps it a hope that that both now and his sovereign care god he, he desires to grow you in his sovereign care for you, but he also has a hope for you that's eternally secure in heaven that's what you're hoping in that hope will ground us in the midst of this and so james he I know that picture that I put on the screen at the beginning, kind of one of the sides is like really beautiful and, 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 green, and green and the other side's got a dark and, and cloud. Actually, it's a desert. That's actually perfect. Uh, but uh, the reality is there's not like this beautiful one and then this awful one. Oftentimes our walk with Jesus might look a little dark and that's actually the path that leads to life. That's, that's the thing that we get mixed up in our walk with Jesus. And, and so James, he wants us to see The life with Jesus, it actually might still be pretty hard. But he's saying God is using that in the the moment to form you more deeply in him, to grow your trust in him. And all of it's fleeting. There will be a day where there's no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering. And that's the day that you're longing for, not this one. And so James, he's trying to reorient them back to the, the good path that is enduring faith in God amidst the trials of life. So I'm gonna pray for us and then we'll be done. But God, I thank you for this time and singing your praises and um, worshiping you as we read and study your word together. And so Jesus, I pray for each of these students that as they walk through their lives with you or even investigating you, that they would understand your your good and generous and, and and in control and longing to use the circumstances of their lives so oftentimes you put there to form us more deeply in enduring steadfast faith in Jesus that they would they would run from the the temptations of their enemy and even of their own flesh that wants to twist trials into some evil intent that you have for them in Jesus I know that's hard for us and especially in the midst of them but God I pray that um we would recognize that the long road of faithful endurance and steadfast faith in you is worthy of our lives. And we do it because you went before us. Your life was far from easy. Jesus, you entered into the muck and the mire with us. You suffered, your whole life was suffering. And Jesus, um, you've showed us the way to glory is often found in suffering. And so Jesus, would we seek to imitate you with enduring steadfast faith that leads to the joy that only you offer. So in Jesus' name I pray, amen.